My name is Alicia Lee, and I'm one of the lay pastors here at LMCC. And um, I recognize a lot of the faces out here, but not all of them. So if I haven't met you yet, I hope to um, after service today. And today I'll be talking about the prodigal son. It's one of the most famous parables of the Bible. And so to begin, we should probably start by talking about what a pro pro prodigal, what a parable is. And it's pretty simple. A parable is just a story. And there are somewhere between 40 and 50 parables in the Gospels, depending on how you count them, um, because Jesus chose to do a lot of teaching through these parables. But why? Jesus actually explains why in a parable. Only Jesus, the master communicator, would choose to explain why parables in a parable, but that's what he does. And he chooses the parable of the sower. It goes like this. There was a farmer who went out to sow his seed. Sow just means to plant. And as he's scattering the seeds, they fall on different places. Some of the seeds fall on the path, some in rocky places, some in the thorns. And as you can imagine, the seed that falls on those places don't take root. But some of the seeds fall on good soil, on good, rich soil, and they produce a good crop. After Jesus tells the story about why he speaks in parables, his disciples say, wow, that's amazing. Um, but hey, Jesus, can you tell us why you speak in parables? They were his closest companions, and yet they didn't understand that he had literally just explained it to them. In fact, he had anticipated their question, pre-explained it, and they still didn't get it. When something in the Bible confuses me, which, let's face it, is often, I like to think about that moment. You'll notice in the Gospels that Jesus doesn't always explain the meanings of his parables, and there's a reason for that. Um, but he carefully explains this one, um, because he really wanted his disciples to understand. He really wants us to understand. And this is what he says. He says, God is the farmer, and his word is the seed. Our hearts are the soil. If the seed, if God's word falls on the wrong kind of soil, if it falls somewhere over here, if the conditions are not right, then his word cannot take root. Um, it can be snatched away. It can fall away. It can get stuck in the thorns that are the complications of life. Um, but if the soil is good, if it's here, if it's rich soil, if the conditions of our heart are right, if our hearts are soft and teachable, then his word can take root and produce a beautiful crop. So it turns out there's a reason why the word is mysterious, why sometimes it makes no sense to us, it makes no sense to the disciples. Because God, in his wisdom and his grace, holds back insight from us until our hearts are ready until his word can take root on good soil and produce a good crop. Let's put a bookmark right there. We'll come back to all of this again at the end. Um, but for now, I think we're ready to get into the prodigal son. Um, so I'll start by telling you the story of the prodigal son, and I'll give you some context for it by telling you the two parables that come right before it. Um, then we'll dig deeper into the prodigal son by breaking it down into two parts. First, the wandering of the prodigal, and then the homecoming. So those are the three parts of the messages. I'll tell you the story, we'll talk about the wandering, and then the homecoming. Um, so here's part one. Luke 15, 
is made up of three parables. It's the parable of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the prodigal son. The prodigal son is the culmination, it's the centerpiece. But we need to understand the first two parables that come before it um, because there's a reason why they're presented together in a group. So the first parable is the parable of the lost sheep. And it goes like this. Jesus says there was once a shepherd who had a hundred sheep. But one of those sheep goes missing. It wanders off and gets lost. Jesus says that the shepherd leaves the 99 sheep and he goes off searching for that one lost sheep. And he searches everywhere for that sheep. He searches high and low, and he does not stop until he finds that one sheep. And when he finds that sheep, he is so filled with joy that he takes that sheep and lifts it up, passionate joy, and he carries the sheep on his very shoulders, and he carries him home with delight. And when he gets home, he calls everybody that he knows, and he says, let's get together. Let's have a party. It's a short but beautiful parable. The second one is also short. This is the one about the lost coin. There's a woman, and she has 10 valuable silver coins. And like the shepherd, she loses one of the coins. And like the shepherd, she searches diligently. See, she searches everywhere, every nook and cranny of the house, until she finds that one valuable lost coin. And then like the shepherd, the woman calls everyone together that she knows, and she says, let's have a party. That's the second parable. And that brings us now to the prodigal son. Jesus says there was a father with two sons. The younger son says, Father, I think it's time for me to get my share of the inheritance. The father says, okay, very well then. And he gives uh, the inheritance to both of the sons. Almost right away, the younger son packs up his things and he goes to a faraway land. And no surprise, he wastes his entire inheritance on what the Bible calls wild living on prostitutes, on debauchery. And with nothing left, he starts to get hungry. Because at the same time, a severe famine hits that faraway land. No one has anything to spare him. And so the young son begs this farmer for a job. And he gets one, feeding the pigs. It's a humiliating job, but he does it. But he's still so hungry that if they had let him, he would have eaten the slop given to the pigs. The Bible says that it's at this point that the young son finally comes to his senses. And he thinks, wait a minute. At my father's house, his workers have plenty to eat. They have all the food they want. And here I am feeding the pigs, dying of hunger. And he realizes, I want to go back to my father's house. He starts to plan what he's going to say. And I imagine that he practices it. Right, that he practices it as he's giving the pigs their last feeding, as he's packing up his thing, he practices it as he's starting the long journey home. And this is what he planned to say. He planned to say, Father, I was wrong. I have sinned. I'm not worthy to be called your son. Don't treat me like your son. Just treat me like one of your workers. So he makes that long journey home. And as he starts to come within sight, the father sees him first. And the father races out to see him with a heart that's swelling up with love. And he sweeps him up in his arms and he hugs him and he kisses him. And the son has been practicing his speech the whole way here. So he launches right into it. He says, Father, I was wrong. I have sinned against you. I could never deserve to be called your son. Just let me. But the father doesn't let him finish. The father interrupts him 
And he says, son, you are home. He calls all his servants and he says, bring me the best robe. Bring me my robe. I'm going to put it on my son. Bring me the ring, the ring with the seal of sonship. Bring me the best shoes. Let's put together a feast. We're going to celebrate because my son was once lost, but now he is found. It would be nice and tidy if the story just ended right there, right? Because the first two parables basically end right there, but this one goes on. Jesus tells us that when the older son finds out about this homecoming, he is furious. He refuses to celebrate. In fact, the father has to go out to him. The father has to plead with him to join the feast, but the older son won't budge. He says, how many years have I worked like a slave for you? I've done every duty you asked. I've never once disobeyed, but you've never thrown a party like this for me. Look at him. He came back after wasting your money, and you reward him by throwing this huge party. When the father hears this, he says, my son, my son, you are always with me by my side. Everything that I have is yours. But your brother was once lost and now he's found. It's only right to celebrate. And the parable ends there. There's a lot there. A lot to think about, a lot to unpack. Um, So let's break down the prodigal son into two parts, into the wandering and the homecoming. And now in part two, we'll dig into the wandering. What's the first thing you think of when you hear the word wandering? I think of um, of the Israelites wandering in the wilderness, wandering for 40 years, wandering for food. I also think of Cain. Cain, after he kills his brother Abel, the Lord says to him, you are going to wander the earth for the rest of your life. But it's not just physical wandering that the Bible talks about. The physical is just symbolic for the heart. And some of the wandering in the Bible isn't physical at all. It's all heart, like David. A man after God's own heart in his sin, he wanders far from God's heart. And it's not just Old Testament, right? This is New Testament stuff too. The New Testament is filled with warnings to us about wandering from the truth, about wandering from the faith. I think about my own wandering. Now, I heard the gospel in college, but I wandered away from it right back into college life. Um, I got baptized at Jones Beach in 2007, and right after, I wandered right back into my New York City life. Years later, even after I fully gave my life to Christ, I would still have times of neglecting prayer, neglecting my Bible reading. We are prone to wander. If that sounds familiar to you, it's because there is the classic hymn called, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. We sing it here from time to time. Um, And don't worry, I'm not going to sing it now. Um, But the line that has always stuck with me goes like this. It says, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Whenever I sing that line, I, I know it's about me. We know we wander. We don't really need the prodigal son to tell us, which is why I think the wandering is just the surface of the story. There's something else underneath and it's searching, but not our searching, his searching, his searching for us. Have you ever wondered about the headings in the Bible? The headings in the Bible were added by translators to help us to um, organize the Bible. Um, And if you look at some of the older translations like King James and you look at Luke 15, for example, you'll notice that there are no headings at all. 
the three parables that we talked about all just kind of run together. Um, and so it's the translators of our more modern Bibles who have added the headings, which have become the titles for the parables. And what do they call each of the parables? The lost sheep, the lost coin, and the prodigal son. They all represent us, our wandering, our lostness, the surface of the story. If I could rename these parables, I'd put them together and I'd put one title over them. The wandering and the searching. The lost and the found. We know we wander, but what we don't always know is that God is looking for us. That he's searching for us unceasingly. That's why he tells us the first two parables. That's why he first tells us about the diligent search for the lost sheep. That's why he first tells us about the diligent search for the lost coin, so that we would know the wandering of the prodigal son, that's only half the story. That's just the wandering. The father searching is the other half. The father is searching. After the son gets his inheritance and he squanders it, the Bible says there was a famine. I wonder who allowed that famine to take place in that specific distant country where the son was. The son had lost everything already, but I wonder who allowed the famine to bring him to rock bottom, to bring him to that place, yet not to let him perish, but to use it to soften his heart to the truth. The Bible says that it was there at rock bottom that the son came to his senses. Some translations say the son came to himself, but that doesn't make any sense to me because we already know about this son. We know what he chooses. He chooses wild living, so the son coming to himself shouldn't produce any different results. So I'm left to draw one conclusion, which is that it wasn't the son, at least not on his own. It was the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit searched for the son. This Holy Spirit found the son. The Holy Spirit watched and waited, influenced the circumstances around that son waiting for the conditions to be right, waiting for the son's heart to be ready. And what does the Holy Spirit reveal when the son's heart is ready? The truth about the father's house. The son may have wandered, but the father was searching the whole time. The wandering is what we see. It's what we experience. It's the surface of the story. But the searching is what's underneath. It's what supports the story, what supports us. It's God's constant searching. And the thing that brings those two pieces of the story together, the wandering and the searching, is the Father's heart. And that is the better title for these parables, the Father's heart. It's his love for us. I learn new things about God all the time. Um, until I meet him, I think, I, I hope that will always be the case, but there are certain truths about God's character that are the foundation of my relationship with him. And um, everything I knew, everything new that I learned just sort of builds on top of that. One of the truths is that God is jealous for us. God is jealous for our love. This is from Exodus. Do not worship any other God, for the Lord whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. This is repeated multiple times in Exodus, Deuteronomy, Joshua. God is jealous for us. But what does that mean exactly? For me, I get the image of a lover, of God, 
who can't bear for his beloved's heart, for our heart to be divided. Have you ever wondered, if God is all-powerful, why doesn't he just force me to love him? It's a legit question, and it comes down to this truth about God's character. He's jealous for us, jealous for our love. A forced love would be so unsatisfying to him. The greatest joy, the greatest satisfaction for a God whose name is jealous is a people who choose him, who choose to love him of our own free will. God's love is evident in the wandering as much as it is evident in the searching. All right, so we're in part three of the message now where um, we'll look at the last part of the prodigal son, the homecoming. The homecoming is the reason I'm talking about the prodigal son today. It's the reason the church exists. It's the gospel. A couple of months ago in my community group, we read through the book of Luke. And um, I was sitting in my office early one morning. That's when I like to do my Bible reading. Um, And as I got to Luke 15 and I got to the prodigal son and to this moment of homecoming, I was overcome. I just found myself weeping. Let me actually um, read the moment of homecoming to you. It was the scripture reading uh, today, and it's just a couple of verses. So the young son set off for home. From a long distance away, his father saw him coming, dressed as a beggar, and great compassion swelled up in his heart for his son who was returning home. The father raced out to meet him, swept him up in his arms, hugged him dearly, and kissed him over and over with tender love. When I read that, I stopped being just in the pages of the Bible. It was like God came down and lifted my heart up and put it right next to his so that I could feel how the father's heart burst with joy when the son came home. That feeling that I felt, it was unbearable beauty. I could only be in it for a few seconds before I had to rip my heart back to safety. I imagine that what I felt was just a shadow of what it's like to look upon God's very face. It's too beautiful, too holy, too good. Um, So when I met with my group, I asked everyone, hey, did you feel something when you read The Prodigal Son? Like, did you have an experience? And when I realized it was just me, (laughs) that's when I knew. I have to talk about it. I'm supposed to talk about it, and so here I am. Um, So as I was preparing this message, someone in my group gave me, I have lots of show-and-tell things today. (laughs) Someone gave me this book. Um, It's The Return of the Prodigal Son by Henry Nowen. And I didn't look at it at first. I just let it sit there. I mean, it looks so old and musty and boring. (laughs) I couldn't see how this was going to help me. Um, But last week, I finally picked it up, thinking, maybe I'll just skim it just a little bit. And within the first two pages, I was hooked. Um, So just to back up a second, um, in case you don't know Henry Nouwen, because I didn't, um, he was a Catholic priest born in the 1930s. Um, and he is taught in some of the most prestigious places, like Notre Dame and the Yale School of Divinity and Harvard School of Divinity. Um, He found himself in France one fall in the 80s, and he stumbled upon a poster. It was a reproduction of one of Rembrandt's famous paintings. It's called The Return of the Prodigal Son. 
Um, Shay, could you put it up on the screen? Here it is. So what blew me away, it's also on the cover of this book, what blew me away was how Henry described his reaction to this poster. He said, I kept staring at the poster and finally stuttered. It's beautiful, more than beautiful. It makes me want to cry and laugh at the same time. I can't tell you what I feel as I look at it, but it touches me deeply. Later, Henry had the opportunity to see the original painting in St. Petersburg, and he says that he spends four hours with the painting, four hours just staring at it, contemplating it, basking in it, and that time became the basis for his book, this moment of homecoming. I was reading the words. He was looking at this painting, but our reaction was the same. It was this instant heart connection with the father. After that encounter, we had some of the same impulses. So we both had the impulse to create him this book, me this message, um, and we had the impulse to discover more. Part of that discovering more for both of us was this. The younger son's homecoming isn't the whole story of homecoming. We actually know it's not the whole story because the story doesn't end there, right? It ends with that furious older son refusing to celebrate, asking the father, how many years have I worked like a slave for you? Who here feels empathy for the older brother? I know I do. I'm the oldest of three. I'm responsible, I'm reliable, and I always have been. And so I get the older brother thing. He's responsible and he's reliable and he always has been. He did all the right things. Do you know what the word prodigal means? I bet if I took a survey here, most people would say prodigal means wandering, right? Someone who wanders away and then returns because of this parable. But if you look at the definition of wandering, it actually means wasteful. It means to squander, someone who squanders. Once I put that definition in place, it really opens up my meaning, it opens up my understanding of homecoming. Once I understand that prodigal doesn't mean wandering, it means squandering, I can see the older brother a whole lot more clearly. The jealous, resentful, angry older brother who spent his whole life in his father's house but never tasted its joy. He didn't wander from his father's house because he didn't have to. He squandered his father's love anyway. I think for most people it's way easier to identify with the younger son, the one who wandered to a distant land because we can all spot some version of that story in our own lives but I think we're the older son too. You know, forget that he did all the right things. Look at his reaction. What does he say? He says, Dad, this is so unfair. How many of us have ever looked at our circumstances, compared it with someone else's circumstances, and then burned with jealousy? How many of us have ever wanted something, prayed for something, and when we don't get it, in our anger, we forget everything else that we've ever been blessed with? How many of us question God's wisdom, just like the older son? I think we're all the older son too. And God wants him, wants us to know that he's searching for him too, that homecoming is available for him too. 
When the older son refuses to come in for the celebration, the father goes out to meet him, goes out to plead with him, just like he did with the younger son. And the father is tender and compassionate. He doesn't rebuke him. There's no discussion of his sin, just like with the younger son. He says, son, you were always with me by my side. Everything that I have is yours to enjoy. And with his words, he's opening his arms for embrace. It's it's an invitation to the father's house, just like with the younger son. Life is a journey. We might start off as the younger son and eventually find ourselves as the older son or vice versa. God wants us to see that both sons are prodigals, that we are all prodigals. We're the lost sheep, we're the lost coin, we're the younger son, we're the older brother, and God is searching, 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 searching for every single one of us throughout our journeys so that we might turn away from our old lives, that's called to repent, and instead turn to him, come home to him. And when we do, when we do, heaven celebrates. That's the last thing I want to talk about around the homecoming, which is the celebration. You may have noticed that Jesus doesn't hold back when he talks about celebration. Each time the lost is found, in each of the three parables, there's a celebration. And what's interesting to me is that um, when Jesus describes the celebration, he actually breaks from the metaphor. What do I mean by that? Well, when the shepherd comes home, he calls everyone together to have a party. This moment is so important that Jesus stops talking about sheep and shepherds, and he talks about reality. He switches gears. He says, in the same way, there will be a glorious celebration in heaven over the rescue of one lost sinner who repents and comes back home. And the same thing happens in the parable of the lost coin. When the woman finds the coin, she calls all her friends together for a party. And once again, Jesus breaks from the metaphor. He's not talking about the coin or the woman anymore. Instead, he says, that's the way. God responds every time one lost sinner repents and turns to him. Then God says to all his angels, let's have a joyous celebration. This part should make sense to us. We got a taste of it just a couple weeks ago, right? Two weeks ago, we baptized seven people here at LMCC, and with each baptism, we broke out into joyful applause even if we didn't personally know Margaret or Judy or Avery or the others who got baptized, we clapped, we rejoiced, we ate brunch. And that's just us here in this world with our limited vision of what's going on. How much more do you think heaven celebrated a couple of weeks ago, God and all his angels with their full view of the significance of what happened up here at the baptismal? God wants us to have that full view. That's why celebration is so important. Consider this. Where else in the Bible does heaven stop what it's doing because of something that's happening here? I can only think of one other time, the birth of Jesus. At the birth of Jesus, the uh, the angels came down from the heaven. They came down to earth. They rejoiced, and they went back up, which means that what happened here is right up there with the birth of Christ. When we repent and come home to the Lord, when the lost is found, that's right up there with the birth of Christ, a moment so powerful that it changes the heavens. That is homecoming, and that is the prodigal son. I'm gonna wrap it up with with where I started, um, which is with the parable of the sower. 
And uh, it's an encouragement to everyone here about reading your Bibles. So this was not my first time reading The Prodigal Son. Um, I'm reading it in a really fulfilling season for me of studying the Word. Um, And as I think about why, at first I thought, well, it must be this passion translation that I'm reading. Um, I've been leading a Bible study on Friday mornings. Um, Everybody is welcome. And I've been doing it out of the Passion Translation, which is new to our church and new to me. Um, And I've really been so blessed by it. Now, I know some people are wary of new translations, but it's not as different as, say, the NIV or the ESV, as you might think. Um, In some chapters, it's really just a word added here or a word changed there. Um, But somehow that one word unlocks a meaning that's been there all along. But I realized that while, yes, I've been blessed by this translation, that's not the whole story. The bottom line is that the conditions of my heart are different. The soil is different. And because his word is falling on good, rich soil, it's bearing fruit in my life, and I hope in some of yours. But if that's not you right now, that's okay. Because if the conditions are good for me now, then it stands to reason that there was a time when the conditions were not good for me, when God, in his wisdom, held back insight from me. I remember a time when reading the Bible was a chore, when it was dry and impersonal impersonal and impenetrable, and it felt irrelevant. Um, But with the Lord's help, I did the work. And it's led me to this place I'm in now where I can encounter God in the very pages of the Bible. Not listening to a sermon or to a song. Those things are great, but they exist to point us to God and point us to his word. That's what awaits you there. You just have to pick it up. You just have to choose it. And it is your choice. Did you notice, by the way, that we don't really know what happens to the sons in the story Did the younger son stay in his father's house? Did the older son turn from his resentment and uh, embrace the father? They have a choice to make, just like you do. And God's love, his jealousy for our love, is evident in that choice that you have. I would just say don't wait to choose. Don't wait until the conditions are good because reading the Bible changes the conditions. And if you're already there, and I know many of you are, I remind you, remind us that it's a lifetime journey. Henry Nouwen, my new hero, was a priest who devoted his whole life to teaching his students about God. Henry didn't have his encounter with the prodigal son until he was in his 50s. And that then set off a years-long discovery process about who he had been, who God was calling him to be. And he said something about his discovery that I'd love to share with you. Henry said he realized that for years, even as he was teaching his students about God, that he was playing the role of the observer. You know, you may remember from looking at the painting, there are these people who are standing around the embrace, right, around the father and the son. And um, he chose that place because it felt safe. It felt like he had control. And over the years, he just kept choosing that role of the observer, looking in from the outside as opposed to getting inside, into the embrace of the father, making himself vulnerable. But that's really where he had yearned to be his entire life. Every pang of loneliness, 
every struggle, every search for unconditional love in all the wrong places was a yearning to be in the embrace of the Father. It's where we all yearn to be, whether we know it or not. It's a great lesson from Henry as we pick up our Bibles, whether it's for the first time or the 500th time. Don't stand outside. Get inside. Let's pray. Lord, our prayer is simple this morning. Um, We ask the Holy Spirit to blow through here. We ask the Holy Spirit continue to search, continue to find, continue to wait, continue to influence the circumstances around us until our hearts are ready. And Holy Spirit, please help our hearts get ready. Help our hearts to be ready for the truth, the truth about the Father's heart. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.